know what the world is all about. None of this is going to surprise you. I'm going to scribble on the whiteboard just because I want to be cool like Keith. Um, I think we all feel that way. We aspire to be cool like Keith, right? Okay, so the world is about, here's the word world. There we go. Ownership, right? What you got? It's yours. Yes, you make sure nobody takes it from you, right? How about uh, your role or your definition? You know who you are, you know where you are in the pecking order, you know who answers to you, and you know who you have to answer to, right? Clearly defined, these are important things. Control. We do not like to be taken by surprise. We don't like to be hit with stuff that we don't want to deal with. We want to be in control and call the shots. And in order to do that, we create strategies because you want to be effective and efficient and you want to get stuff done, right? You want to map it out and be smart, make your mark on the world. And all of this leads to the outcome. We want successful outcomes. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. I want to be really clear about that right from the start. I mean, like one of my gifts, honestly, that I think God wired me with is the ability to strategize things. Like I can do an abstract and I can figure out how to bring it down into a, a practical step-by-step. -step. And that's, that's a God-given thing. That's awesome. Our world was made with order and God gets stuff done. So these are not bad things, but these are the priorities within the world. And we talk a lot here about how oftentimes the kingdom of God shifts the way we look at our priorities, right? It can even take things that are good things, that are strengths, but those strengths could become great weakness if they're not being managed by the agenda that only comes with the spirit of Jesus. We might trample right over people because we're being so effective and efficient getting something done. And we might just trample somebody in the dust in the process. So in the kingdom of God, the more important thing is to not trample anybody, right? So these things that can be good things, but they are so valued and prioritized by the world, get put in a different place when we're part of the kingdom of God and when we're seeking to live lives that follow Jesus, where we walk by faith. So let me have that first slide, if you would be so kind. Hebrews. This is a familiar chapter to a lot of people, if you're familiar at all with the Bible. Hebrews 11 gives us a long list of people from ancient history who followed God by faith and who didn't necessarily get to see all the pieces of the story work out and make sense to them. And yet, at the time that they died, they were still trusting God. They were choosing to live their lives in faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. All of these people that were referenced in this chapter were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. These were all commended for their faith and yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now this is hard. If, if, we're, if we're living in our basic mindset of this is what I can see, touch, feel, this is what I can make happen, this is what the world prioritizes, right? This idea that there might be something withheld from me because it's actually better in the big picture, because it's going to be possible for 
everything in the world to be slightly better because we've welcomed the presence of God, the spirit of Jesus into our lives by faith. We've given up a little bit of control. We've had to look at things as maybe not our own, but maybe we're a part of something bigger that all belongs to God. This is what living a life of faith includes. It allows us to be part of something absolutely ginormous. We're part of a community here at LifePath. And when things happen, um, let's say in India, through microchange with the widows and the orphans that we support there. And we get to see about it on our Facebook feed because our friend James Vemu, who lives there, shares pictures with us. We get a little taste of that ginormousness. We're a part of that. And we only get to be a part of that because God makes that possible. That's not just a social media connection. That's not just a, hey, it's cool that we can share digital photography across the internet. We're a part of that because God has made that possible. And that's some of the bigness that I want us to maybe take a look at this morning. All right, a life of faith, as I was thinking about this, it really points to an attitude of fostering something. And we're talking this summer about ways that we could create a culture of fill in the blank. Um, and this morning we're going to talk about creating a culture that fosters things. To foster something is to take something good and to help it grow, to support it, to encourage it, to nurture it, and to help it to grow. <clears throat> we know about foster parents, right? One of the hardest, highest callings. We would probably all agree. A even something on a little, little simp simpler, fluffier level, like Curtis the seeing eye puppy who was in here this morning with Kim and Doug Smythe. They're seeing eye puppy raisers. Kim has a t-shirt, if you've never seen it, that says, um, seeing eye puppy raiser, yes, we love, yes, we let them go, yes, it's hard, but it's oh so worth it. Right? The idea of fostering is scary to a lot of us because it means you have to love something and nurture it and support it, and you don't get to keep it. That's hard, right? But by choosing, by faith, to create a culture of fostering one another and things in the world, we can really see amazing things happen and get a glimpse of how big the love of God is. This is tied closely to a word that I think has baggage, so I didn't go with this word. I've heard the word stewardship, right? To be a good steward of something. And really, that's the value that I'm kind of talking about this morning, that we would be good stewards of the things that God has allowed us to participate in. But stewardship seems to very quickly make you think about money and stuff, right? And I don't want us to think about money and stuff this morning, so that's why I went with fostering instead, because I want us to think about people. I want us to think about hearts and lives. And sometimes money and stuff is going to factor into that too. Um, but yeah, so if, if this whole idea of like fostering is a weird word to you, if being a good steward of something makes more sense, you are welcome to think about it that way. All right, so we're going to talk about somebody in the Bible that pretty much guarantee everybody's heard of, and that would be Joseph. And we're not talking about the Joseph that we most often talk about, the coat of many colors and the prince of Egypt and all that stuff, but we're going to talk about Joseph of Nazareth, or originally Joseph of Bethlehem. We're talking about Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the Christmas story. Joseph doesn't usually get a whole lot of press in Protestant churches, <laughs> so we're going to give him some love this morning. And it's Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to 
of all the fathers in the room. And let's, let's pay attention to somebody who had a really amazing, unique, and inspiring role as a foster parent. We know the basis, basics of the story. He was pledged to be married to Mary, and in that culture, that was pretty much like they were already married in terms of responsibility, just without the benefits of getting to live together yet. Like, being engaged there was a legally binding contract. It wasn't like with us where it's an understanding and we're planning to spend the rest of our lives together. It was like we have already completely committed to this. So for an engagement to end, you had to like get divorced to end an engagement. It was it was big, big, big deal. So they were engaged when Mary is visited by the angel who tells her that she is going to conceive a child from the Holy Spirit. And when Joseph learns that she's pregnant, he's going to divorce her quietly, right? That's, that's the idea. But an angel comes to him in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This is a God thing that is growing in her. In fact, this is God that is growing in her. Don't be afraid of this. And so he goes ahead and uh, he agrees to be her husband. And they end up having to go to Bethlehem because of the census that's being taken, and we got the baby and the stable and the animals and the angels and the shepherds and the whole gig that everybody knows. But there's a part that comes a little bit later in the story that we often kind of ignore. Let's throw that up there if you wouldn't mind. In uh, Luke chapter 2, Jesus is eight days old, and according to the tradition, when the baby's eight days old, you go to the temple, okay, and you offer a sacrifice. And there's a blessing that goes with all of this. This is a very important part of the ancient Jewish culture. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, Jesus. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what was the custom, what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There's a lot of prophetic language in there. There's a lot of stuff that weaves way back into the Old Testament and and, um, all the prophecies about the Messiah. But I want us to focus on what often gets overlooked here. Flip to the next slide, we got highlights. He's in the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, the parents were Mary and Joseph, right? Except Joseph is like kind of, sort of not the parent, except he is, because here he's referred to as the parent. A little farther down, the child's father and mother marveled. This has got to be a pretty unique thing, right? Because Joseph knows that he's not the father. He also knows that there's no other man who is the father, that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet, he is still the child's father, somehow. He's a foster father with the most incredible amount of responsibility and investment in this child. But he knows that he knows that he knows that he is not the child's father. That's what we're talking about when we talk about having an attitude of fostering, a 
for stewarding. This is investment. It is all-in investment without ownership. Imagine that every time Joseph looked at Jesus through all the stages from the diapers to the learning to walk to the feeding himself and dumping stuff all over himself, all of that, Joseph is looking at this child and he knows I am not his father. God is his father, but I'm raising him. There's an old Michael Card song from back in the 80s, maybe, and it's, I think it's just called Joseph's Song. But the, the part of the chorus, it's, it's Joseph thinking out loud, and he says, all my life I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? And I think that has to have been Joseph's question in his mind all the time. I'm raising the son of God. I'm potty training the son of God. This is weird stuff, you guys. He was all in invested to provide for, to protect, to love, to teach, to teach the son of God. He was all in, but he did not have ownership. He also did not have a clearly defined role. You want to talk about a, a vague and confusing and muddy role? That's it right there in pink, right? I'm the parent, of course I'm not. I'm the father, sort of, kind of, not exactly. I don't know exactly where I fit into all of this, God. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll look back to history and see what other men have done when they've been in this position. Oh, that's right, no one ever has before. This is a unique call in my life. Wow. You have to walk by faith when your role is that undefined. Control. Um, he would have known what he was going to do, right? I mean, he was a carpenter. He had a trade. He had a hometown. They were going to raise, a, uh, their, their, establish their home, raise their family. Except that very, very shortly after this point here, he's told in a dream that they got to run to Egypt and they're going to go live as exiles because otherwise... Jesus is going to be slaughtered by King Herod. So he takes his family and they go. And then after a while there, there's another dream. Oh, it's safe to go back now. So now you can go back and start. There's a lot of flexibility called for here. And there is very little control that Joseph was able to enjoy. The responsibility for so much felt like it rested on him. And yet he could not control these very unusual circumstances from one turn to the next. He then spends a couple of decades raising Jesus and fathering half-siblings because Jesus had lots of siblings who came afterwards. And I would imagine that that was always on Joseph's radar to look at the kids all sitting on the floor on you know, the Sabbath dinner, whatever, special, precious family moment, and to look around and to see again, he doesn't look like me. I'm not his father, except I am, except I'm not. There's mystery in that. When Jesus was 12, his family went to Jerusalem for Passover. And as the whole caravan is then heading back home, right, they can't find Jesus. 12-year-old, missing. Everybody worries. Oh, no, oh, no. Joseph and Mary go back. They find him, and he's in the temple, and he's teaching. 
And Mary scolds him and she says, don't you know your father and I were anxious about you? Again, Joseph is called his father because he was. And Jesus' answer was, didn't you know that I would need to be in my father's house? That's living with mystery, you guys. That's not being able to rationally figure it all out and connect the dots so that you could feel a little bit better about your place in the universe. Um, next slide. I'm like, it's not lit up the right color. That's why. It's because it's on the next slide that it is. Final piece of the story here. Simeon's prophecy, he says to Mary, his mother, this is what's going to happen with Jesus, all this big, big stuff, and it's going to slam you. There's going to be something so personally piercing about this. But he doesn't include Joseph in that. He doesn't say it to the child's mother and father. He doesn't say it to both of them, just to Mary. And right here from the beginning, we're set up for the fact that we know this is true. Joseph was no longer alive at the time that Jesus was crucified. As far as we can tell, he was not alive for any of Jesus' earthly ministry. We don't know exactly. I don't think we know exactly, do we? I looked it up. I couldn't find anything. We don't know exactly when he died. But all indications are that he'd probably been gone for quite some time. He didn't get to see the big outcome. We like successful outcomes, don't we? Don't we sometimes commit to something hard and mysterious that requires flexibility, that doesn't have a really clearly defined role because we can see that we're heading toward this really cool finish. And we know that when we get to that point, it's going to be worth it. And we're going to go, Phew. And Joseph didn't get that. He didn't get the outcome. He is, to me, an extremely inspiring example because he embraced the process fully, even though the outcome was not going to be a part of his story. There's a poem by Wendell Berry that Keith mentioned to me the other day that I had not thought about in forever. This is a tiny little slice of it. It's called Manifesto of the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And in this, he encourages us to plant sequoias. Sit with that for a second. Sequoias, right? The big California trees that take like a zillion years to grow. And this poet encourages us to plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. This poet, who was a follower of Jesus, encourages us to live our lives as if we are a part of something that is so big that our main crop, the main thing that we can be proud of, that we can take away from it, will be something that we didn't start and we're not even going to be around to see the finish. What he's saying is, the kingdom of God is your biggest crop. Your participation in what God is doing in you, in your relationships, in the world around you, that's the best. That's as good as it gets and then some. Plant sequoias. So in a practical sense, what does it look like to create a culture of fostering? Well, we recognize it, first of all. We train ourselves to pay attention and to look at our lives and the lives of others around us through this lens that says we are a part of something that is so very big 
that we're planting sequoias, that we don't have ownership of it, that we may not have a clearly defined role that we can feel comfortable with, where we don't have control of how it's going to play out, where we don't get to use the awesome brains we've been given to strategize an effective and efficient way for doing it, and where we may or may not see the outcome. And this is good news. It doesn't feel like good news at first pass, but it is. And we're going to get to that. We need to recognize that this is the reality. We need to validate it in each other. One of the things that this guy's really good at right here, that's my husband, Fred. Everybody look at Fred and make him uncomfortable, please. <laughs> One of the things this guy's really good at is fostering. Fred's a stepfather to my kids. We're a blended family. And when he came into our lives, my youngest was six. My oldest was 13. And Fred has been father to them for a really long time. And yet, he also wasn't because their dad was still in their lives. And he was their father. Fred, like Joseph, took on responsibility. He was all in. But he didn't really have ownership. He had a role that was as clearly defined as we could make it. But there were moments over the years where he would say, something's going on with this one, and I'll pray for you, but you've got to go do it, because it's not my kid. And there's a, there's a boundary there that I'm not going to step over out of respect for that. That, that. All that stuff right there is something that I've watched this guy live out for 16 years in my life. And along the way, he again and again validates me when I feel that discomfort, when I find myself in a situation where God is calling me to be a foster something in a situation, maybe not always a foster parent, but where I have that, that culture of fostering around me that I need to be all in, but I don't actually get ownership, and where I'm not entirely sure what my role is, but I know that God's calling me to be there. So we can validate it in each other, and we can say, it's okay that this feels really uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that it's not what you're supposed to be doing. And we can offer support to one another in situations like that. We can see it in ourselves, we can see it in one another, we can see it in our community, and we could even see it in the world around us, in the church worldwide in particular. It's so important that we recognize the part that we're playing in India, the part that we're playing in Estonia, the part that we're playing in Norway, and anywhere you look in the world, God is at work. His kingdom is growing and transforming lives of all who follow Jesus, and we are a part of that because God says so, because he gives us that connectedness, because he gives us opportunities to pray, because he gives us opportunities to support and encourage, it's really, really big. Anything that we do not own, but we invest in wholeheartedly, is something that we're fostering because we follow Jesus. Anything that provides us with a confusing or vaguely defined role, even as we have to actively participate, and we're doing it because we're following Jesus. That's creating a culture of fostering. Anything that requires us to sensitively respond and be flexible rather than maintaining control over things. When we do that because we follow Jesus, we're creating a culture of fostering where something good can grow.
anything that's beyond our ability to figure out, to put nice, clear words to bullet points. Oh, I love bullet points. If only my life existed in bullet points. But no, where there's mystery and we just embrace it because we have faith in Jesus, we're creating a culture of fostering. Anything that we're participating in with zero guarantee that we're going to get to see the big finish. But we know that there's a big finish coming. We're creating a culture of fostering. So let's get real practical. In my life lately, slide five, please. It's my Aunt Bernice. Y'all just prayed for her this morning. She's 92. And she's pretty amazing. And I have been <clears throat> traveling about every six or eight weeks to Indiana, where she lives, um, because she never married, she never had children. She has outlived all but two of her friends. And she lives alone. She will not consider changing that. And in addition to some dementia, she face-planted on the sidewalk in front of church a year ago and gave herself a wicked concussion and has almost zero ability to create short-term memories anymore. So um, life is a little complicated for her. I just got back on Thursday from a week. That was, that was taken Thursday morning. A week with her, um, I went with my dad, who's her baby brother, her only remaining sibling. And she still calls him baby brother, and he's 87. <laughs> it's really cute. She introduces him to waitresses. This is my baby brother. So cute. But we went there because there are people in the world who pray on little old ladies. And there have been a bunch of them praying on her. And they have been uh, explaining to her that she's won millions of dollars in cars. And as long as she just writes this check that will cover the IRS shipping and handling fees. I'm not making this stuff up. And so we went and we protected all of her bank accounts. And we put a robocall blocker on her phone and installed caller ID and to try to give her a little layer of support with that. It's not easy being 92 and having a concussion. But I'm not in control of this, you guys. I don't own this. I want to tell her, move into my house. Spend your remaining days with your family on the East Coast who love you dearly. If you don't want to move into my house, my parents will buy you a condo in their building. Like seriously, these offers have been made. She's lived in this house since 1937. She's not going anywhere. And that's actually her choice. So I don't have ownership of it. I don't have a clearly defined role. I still feel like a child when I walk back into that house, and look how gray my hair is. And I still feel like a kid when I walk in there, because that's my grandma's house that we went to visit every year over Christmas. That's where I was a kid. That's where I would lie on the floor in the upstairs room and talk through the wrought iron grate to my sister in the downstairs room, and we thought we were really, like, spies, and we were cool, and we were sharing secrets through the ductwork, and, you know? But I go in there, and I have to sit and say to her, Aunt Bernice, I just got off the phone with the pharmacy. You should have been out of all of your medicine about two months ago, but you still have half full bottles on the table. Is this because you don't want to take your medicine anymore? Oh, no, no, I didn't stop taking my medicine. So we pour the pills out and we count them and there are 52 pills. And they should have been gone April 30th. And she says, well, maybe I forget once in a while. 
And I have to say, no, honey, you don't forget once in a while. You're forgetting almost all the time. So what are we going to do? And it's horrible. It's horrible. Role reversal is just the pits. I have no clearly defined role here except that I love her. And God keeps telling me that I can go and I can bless her. But I don't have a clearly defined role. I definitely don't have control. My strategy, well, I mean, I make a lot of lists with bullet points. I do. I've had a hard time letting go of that one. Strategizing is what I do. But a lot of times my strategy does not play out as I thought it would, and I have to accept that and go with it. And the outcome, I mean, I know what the outcome's going to be, probably. It's possible she'll outlive me, but, you know, probably not. But I don't know how it's going to play out. It's hard. It's been going on since last August. And it's been crystal clear that God's called me to do this for this time until he says not to anymore. I don't know. I'm walking by faith. But it's creating a culture of fostering in me, in my family. I'm not in control of it, but I'm getting to be a part of it. And even while it's really hard, it's so beautiful. It's so big. I can feel the heartbeat of the kingdom of God when I go to my Aunt Bernice's house. Next slide. Here's some of our kids in India that have recently been eating a hot meal every day and getting recreation equipment to play with. And James has been sending us pictures of them. These are kids who are in a position where their parents are not able to guarantee them a full meal every day because of COVID, because of economic crisis, because of AIDS, because of all kinds of stuff. And we get to look at them and see their faces and pray for them and send money that to us is pocket change, that is changing the probability that they're going to live to adulthood. We're not going to see the outcome. They're probably all going to outlive us. I hope they will. <laughs> we're not there. We're here. I support microchange financially. I pray. I love looking at these pictures. I just look and look and look at these pictures. But as far as I know, I'm not ever going to go to India, except that I might, because I don't know, right? That's how vague my participation is in their lives. I'm just a foster something. I don't know what. But I get to be a part of it. One more slide. Prison care. Here's some of the guys that we correspond with, that we pray for. The one on the top is my son, but even him, I got no ownership. I mean, he's in Orange. The, the, the state of Colorado owns him, you know? Um, he's a grown-up. I can't control things with him, and he's not actually mine. He's my son, but he's not mine. You know that none of our children are actually ours? We don't know what impact we're going to have on any of these guys. This is Jared. <clears throat> he suffers with anxiety disorder. He is so grateful when people say that they've been praying that he would be able to sleep and that he would not have panic attacks. I don't know what's going to happen in Jared's life, but I know that he knows that I've said that I'm praying for him, that he would be able to sleep and that he would not have panic attacks. And that is bringing him hope and courage. 
We don't know how it's going to play out, and our role in their lives is really vague. And those of us who have decided to correspond sometimes say, I don't know what to put in the letter. I don't really know what to say. It feels like this very weird, uncomfortable, awkward role. But it doesn't matter. So did Joseph's role as Jesus' foster father, right? God can do really good stuff in our awkwardness. All right, so tie it all up. Last slide. We create a culture of fostering by being fully invested without ownership, by being okay with awkwardness in our own role, by being flexible instead of controlling, by living with mystery instead of having to figure it all out, and by embracing the process, knowing that we might not even see the outcome. It's a really high calling. It's a big deal to be a foster, whatever. But it's good news. And this is the part that we lose. And I spent a lot of time harping on that this is big, and it's confusing, and it's weird, and it's hard. And it is, but it's such good news. The gospel is all about good news. And here's how it's good news. And I said that was the last slide, but I think that that was a lie because this is actually the last slide. <laughs> It's good news because we're not responsible for outcomes, you guys. Whew. That was a picture of my son on the screen, my son who was incarcerated for murder. But I'm not responsible for the outcome of that story because the ownership rests with God. My son belongs to him. My Aunt Bernice, I want to fix it, I want to fix it, but she is in the hands of the God who loves her, who created her, who redeemed her, and who will never fail her. This does not rest on my shoulders. I'm not responsible for outcomes. And we're invited to participate in work of eternal significance. All the stuff that you own, all your roles in life that are clearly delineated, all the control that you exercise, all the strategy that you figure out and carry out, all the outcomes that you celebrate, they do not have eternal significance. Not when they're yours, but when they're surrendered up to him. And when your attitude is one of fostering and you say, I'm here, I'm a steward of whatever you bring into my life, and Jesus, because I follow you, I'm a part of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. Then everything you do has eternal significance. That's good news. 